Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Um, however, tonight we are celebrating Memento Park by Mark Sarvis. <laughs> Following the reading, he'll be joined in conversation with Janet Fitch. Mark Sarvis is the author of the novel Harry Revised, which was published in more than a dozen countries around the world. His book reviews and criticism have appeared in the New York Times Book Review, the Three Penny Review, Book Forum, and many others. He is a member of the National Book Critics Circle, Penn America, and Penn Center USA, and teaches novel writing at the UCLA Extension Writers Program. Janet Fitch is the author of the novels White Oleander, Painted Black, and most recently, The Revolution of Marina M., an epic novel set during the Russian Revolution. Her short stories and essays have appeared in a variety of publications, including the Los Angeles Review of Books and Vogue. Fitch was a recipient of a Likachev Foundation Fellowship at St. Petersburg, Russia, and is currently completing the second volume of her Russian Revolution novel. Kirkus Reviews described Memento Park as a lively, thoughtful, psychologically compelling novel about the ties that bind and the ties that fail to. And Salman Rushdie described Memento Park as a gripping mystery, a gripping mystery novel about art that is also a powerful meditation on fathers and sons and the need to face up to the falsehood spawned by the horror of the past. We're delighted to have him here tonight to read and discuss Memento Park. Please help me welcome Mark Sarvis. Thank you. Thank you for the lovely introduction. Um, nothing like a hometown crowd, thank you. You've been going around the country to bookstores with a dozen people who don't know you. It's nice to come back to a room full of friendly faces. Thank you. Um, so I'm going to just read a very short uh, section because I'm a real big believer in short readings. Those are my favorite kind. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm just going to, I'm going to like embarrass you for just a second because I'm so grateful. Uh, a lot of the people in this room are former students of mine and um, I have in the front row here um, Leslie Schwartz in whose class, in whose workshop I figured out my first novel. So I'm really thrilled that she came out tonight. It means a lot to me. So I'm not going to get all weepy about it. But thank you very much. Um, I'm going to read, as I said, a very short section from Memento Park. And to set up the novel a little bit, it's a story about a guy who is trying to recover a painting that he believes was looted from his family in the Second World War. And in order to recover the painting, he essentially has to recover um, his family's narrative, the, the, the lost history of his family, um, his relationship with his father, which is bad, and his relationship with his Judaism, which is worse. And um, that's kind of more or less all you need to know. He's, he's an actor, uh, an L.A. actor, but kind of one of those actors who just... Uh, you know, gets parts with uh, no names, you know, like engineer number three and stuff like that, but, but he's got a w career doing that. And the novel is sort of, uh, it's framed as this 
it's an internal monologue. It's an extended internal monologue. And he's, it's, he's in the sort of Sotheby's substitute the night before the painting is about to go on auction. And there's a security guard wandering whom he has dubbed Virgil. And so when you hear reference to Virgil in his mind, he's sort of communicating with the security guard. And I, because the book is full of um, scenes in which uh, Matt, my narrator, his father, is a pretty monstrous guy, I thought I would share one of the scenes in the novel where we see the softer side of Matt's dad. So without further ado, a very short reading from Memento Park. Nope, that's the wrong page. Virgil appears sufficiently convinced of my harmlessness to have begun a game of solitaire, which he attends with a dogged consistency that's almost touching, though the cards do not favor him. Once or twice, a groan floats my way as yet another unwanted red king is turned over. I loathe the tense tedium of card games. My father played cards every Friday night at a Hungarian social club in Manhattan. Social club. The words evoke images of a world so foreign, a world in which people might socialize for no other reason than shared nationality. My father's mood was unfailingly bad the day after he'd lost, which was often, and he railed against the stupidity and the greater sin in his view, the timidity of his partners who had no killer instinct. Those were his words, killer instinct, something he imagined he possessed in abundance. Dinah, I'm watching you now because, you know, Dinah's our expert on, on how we give readings, and, and so, so I'm, I'm checking in with you. When I was 10, he had the occasion to visit he had occasion to visit the club, as he called it, in the middle of a day, and he took me along on an errand the purpose of which is long forgotten. I'd only heard talk of it, and had constructed such an elaborate fantasia of glamorous men and women, music, and danger, that I leapt at the opportunity to see firsthand where my father spent his Friday nights. I suspect my disappointment was palpable as we mounted the steps of a sagging brownstone in Yorkville, the Hungarian neighborhood of Manhattan off 2nd Avenue in the mid-80s. A battered green steel door embedded with a small square of safety glass gave way to a narrow corridor littered with refuse. Broken mailbox doors dangled at odd angles like decaying teeth. As the elevator approached, the silence was punctuated by the thunk of each floor brushing past. The door slid open in quarters that disappeared into each other and we stepped into the tiny cab. My father let me press one of the six raised black buttons and the floor number glowed amber. The elevator reeked of ammonia. We stepped out and walked down the linoleum-tiled corridor. My ghost father's footsteps rattled along cream-painted cinder blocks. We arrived at a dented and scratched olive door with a security eyepiece and a doorbell bearing the legend, The Tower Club. As I looked around for evidence of a tower, my father pressed the black lozenge firmly and a full round chime answered. The door was opened by a middle-aged woman with orange shellac curls, rhinestone-studded glasses, an architectural bosom, and eyebrows drawn at a rakish angle. This was Ildiko, and she smiled at the sight of my father, beckoned him to enter, and cooed over me, applying special accented ministrations upon the much-discussed but never-seen prodigal son. My father transformed, became Gubby, the boisterous, jovial charmer, a creature I'd glimpsed at dinner parties. It was a bravura turn, and I do know about such things. The scope of the part was small. A critic might call it one note, but he owned it and delivered a convincing, if broad, performance. Ildiko's interest in me spent itself quickly, and she assumed her place behind a bar stocked with dusty bottles of Crown Royal and Shinzano, speaking rapid Hungarian into a black telephone, and I was able to take in the room. What struck me first was the smell 
stale like the cosmetic section of a cheap department store. The combination of scents laced with cigarette smoke and Ildico's hairspray should have been revolting, but I swooned. There were eight round tables cratered, uh, covered with white tablecloths, nearly all of which were cratered with cigarette burns. Abandoned half-full glasses with cigarette butts floating in them. Two of the tables were occupied. At the first, three men my father's age were playing cards. It was to this table that he attached himself with an admonition for me to stay put and not bother anyone. But it was the players at the second table who riveted me. Two elderly men sat in old military uniforms. One of the two was emaciated. His stubbled turkey jowls disappeared, disappearing into his collar, which sat loosely around his blue-veined neck. All gray wisps, he seemed to vanish within his uniform. His friends suffer from the opposite problem, straining at the buttons of his jacket, constantly tugging at his waistband for elusive comfort. Moth-eaten ribbons rested upon their chests. Tarnished metals failed to catch the light. There was an absurd formality in their posture. Despite their dotage and infirmities, they sat rigidly upright with a wan martial dignity. I strained to listen as the thin one drew a card and threw what I took to be some chips into the pot. I see your 20,000 Romani souls and raise you 5,000 souls. The fat general perused his cards once more and nodded decisively. I raise you 100,000 Bulgarian souls. A terrible expression crossed the thin general's face, as though a herald had just delivered the worst possible news. Bottom lip trembling slightly, he set his cards face down and spat in obscenity. The fat general nodded as if in agreement and collected his winnings. Not chips, but a pile of multicolored bottle caps intended to represent the souls in question. Fanta oranges, Pepsi blues, Sprite greens, Coke reds. Ildiko noticed my interest and leaned over the bar to whisper to me. The fat one, he commanded 5,000 men in Hungary. Terrible battles in the war. Almost died during the siege of Budapest. Now he's a janitor. The skinny one, he led three battalions, was tortured by the Germans, told them nothing. Here he delivers newspapers. She leaned in close. They say the fat one pushed Jews into the Duna. Who knows? She shrugged, a gesture meant to explain all tragic comic inequities to me, and I wished I was old enough to decipher it. I glanced over to where my father was kibitzing with his buddies and saw that he had noticed my interest. He looked at the two generals with distaste, and after thumping his friends theatrically in the back, rose and collected me. Effusive goodbyes were exchanged, and we found ourselves in the hallway waiting for the elevator. What is the Duna? The Danube, a river in Budapest. The woman told me she thinks the fat man pushed Jews in the river. Why did he do that? My father did not answer. Though I didn't realize it at the time, he was continuing a lifelong pattern of not discussing the war. I persisted. Who were those men in the uniforms, I asked. His reply was clipped, tense. Nobody. The elevator arrived and we stepped inside. My father pressed the ground floor button, depriving me of my little pleasure. But he rested his hand on my shoulder, a rare bit of physical contact that gave me even greater joy. Then he spoke again hoarsely. Ghosts, Matyash. They're ghosts. He jabbed at the ground floor button, eager to get me the hell out of there. I was never invited back to the Tower Club, which was demolished last year to make way for a luxury condominium. My two generals are surely dead by now, though I imagine them taking their game of souls elsewhere and continuing it until the moment when their own souls would be collected on another larger table. Thank you. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Janet Fitch. Ladies and gentlemen, Mark Sarvis. Well, 
Thank you. Ah, what a pleasure to read this. Um, well, I, let's see, where, um, we, we've met under many roofs. Uh, the LA literary scene has, uh, has a number of, of, uh, uh, sort of interlocking circles. So it's teaching at UCLA, uh, where he teaches the wonderful advanced novel writing program, UCLA Extension, and uh, in the homes of friends at readings like this. The David uh, Francis circle the, that brings the, so many of us into right, it. That's right, my writing so. workshop. Um, and right I probably, but I probably encountered you first on the page through your criticism. Uh, and literary articles, most specifically uh, the celebrated uh, Dearly Departed blog of the Elegant Variation. And uh, the first question I, I think I'd like to ask is having reviewed so many books and done so much criticism, do you find um, when you're writing, are you haunted by things you've said about other people's books? <laughs> like, oh, that ending. Oh, God. Um, no, it's a wonderful question, actually. Uh, haunted, no. No. Um, you know, I'm, I've got a borderline sociopathic relationship with conscience, so no. Uh, no, not, not haunted, but... And, and this is, I, you know, for, for those in the room, and I know there are others who write criticism here, this is one of those sort of ongoing questions that ought uh, fiction critics cri uh, be writers of fiction themselves, or ought they not to be? And there, there's sort of merits to both sides. What ended up happening for, happening for me was all of that criticism really was my education. It was my 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 first MFA. I'm in an MFA program now, of all things. But doing that was my my way of figuring out what I thought about things. What what I did come to see, come to learn when I wrote my own novel was just you know, how effing difficult. It really, really is. And, you know, when I look back at the sort of the, the, the many reviews I'd written, there's only one that I, I feel it's sort of a twinge of, mm, because it was a debut, and I was, I was rough on the debut. Now, it was a debut that got a shit ton of money and a great movie deal, and I wrote about it in a fairly obscure newspaper, so I don't think it kept him up nights. Uh -huh. But... But that has changed as sort of as I've gone through the process of writing, and I understand firsthand how much a writer invests in a big, long project, as you know, and how much of their lives they put into it. Um, I think about that. Actually, my criticism is different and affected by it more than my. It's the, writing the novel has affected the way I write criticism, as opposed to memories of my, you know, snarky tongue affecting my my novel. Huh. So the. Um, uh one of the things that I think is uh, about teaching is that uh, you're using a different muscle in criticism than you are using in, and also in teaching, than you use in your creative work. And I, uh, I did read that you started this book uh, as a first book and then put it away. 
that you didn't feel you were cooked yet. You weren't ready to write it. Can you talk a little about that? Yeah, I didn't even start it, actually. I, I had the idea, and um, you know, my, my first short story was published in a now defunct magazine, not my fault, I, I'm pretty sure, uh, in the late 90s, I think. It was a magazine called Troika. It was a nice, glossy magazine. Troika. Yeah, and they published a st short story of mine called The Number, which was um, also sort of a Holocaust-themed story about a a guy whose infant son is born with a number tattooed he's on his arm he's born that way and he has to figure it out I remember that but story I, I wrote that that was me you read that how wow. cool is that wow that's wow this, <laughs> this whole reading is now worth it for that that's like wow, wow. yeah I wrote that and in well, that uh, my author biography for that piece said Mark is working on a novel about looted Nazi Nazi Nazi. <laughs> it's the producers. We were not Nazis. Uh, Nazi art. And but but as I sat down, I realized I, I didn't know enough about how novels work. I, I wasn't confident. There's also a like metric shit ton of research that I knew I had to do, and I wasn't quite ready to soldier up for that, so I instead wrote the first novel that didn't require research and became my, you know, people talk about their training marriages, so that was my, my training novel, so. Well, it's funny, one of the reviews of uh, that first novel, Harry Revisited, uh, by Josh Ferris, s called it a coming-of-middle-age <laughs> novel. And this is as well in its way. There's something about that father-son relationship that you get to middle life. You're, of course, you have to have a Virgil. You're getting into the dark woods, exactly. and you exactly. need uh, Virgil, who in this case is security guard, who's basically doesn't even pay much attention to him. Uh, but he's got, he has to have his Virgil. And what's interesting is that um, your character is an actor. So, you know, as opposed to being, he acts. And he is a, a great, perfect Angelino. We come here, you know, and we, we, the old people don't often talk about the old country. It's like, pfft, you know, right. you don't, pfft, they don't want to talk. They don't say anything. No. In my, did you have an old country family? Is that a, yeah, what I, I'm picking up? Yeah, I mean, I'm a first generation American. My, my parents came over from Hungary separately. That's a whole bizarre story in and of itself. Um, and my grandparents actually lived with us in our house when I was a kid growing up, which is a very, I guess, common in the European model of things, and right. less so here to have extended family there. But. <clears throat> the war was not talked about, you know, all that stuff was not talked about, and, and in fact it was a pretty secular household, there was not a lot of, there was no real Jewish observance of any kind, we had Christmas trees growing up, it was, you know, but in my 30s, I, you know, after around the time that I wrote the number, I became more interested in the, in the family stories, I would try to get my mother to tell me the stories, and she couldn't, I mean, she wanted to, and she would start, and she just couldn't speak, you know, she was overcome by emotion. And I bought her a micro-cassette recorder. I thought, well, maybe if I'm not in the room, she could speak into Couldn't do it. The funny thing is, she, she read, after reading this novel, bam, she calls me up on the phone and tells me this absolutely riveting story about the day she and her cousin, like, were almost killed in Budapest. The day that was the, the difference between life and death. You know, now that I wrote the whole damn book, <laughs> now she tells me the stories, so. Do you think that it's, they're protecting they're protecting us? Or do you think that they ha you have to prove that you can handle 
handle the story. Yeah. What do you think was the difference? I mean, I think it's it's, it's a combination, right? I, I I generally don't think anything is sort of just one thing, and I think that obviously it was. My mother, in particular, as there's a scene in the novel where um, Matt, my narrator, is given a family tree and extent, and he can see all the people that died in his family. That came from life. There was a distant cousin of ours who did that. And when I saw through my mother's side of the family the extent of the devastation of my grandfather's family and how many people were lost, I, I, I really understood why she couldn't talk about that. And now, as a new father. I also am alive to the dimension of wanting to protect children from, you know, the absolute horror that is this world. So I, I think it's a number of those things swirling around in there. Right, and then you have your Californian, Matt. Of yes. course he comes here, and of course he has the beautiful Gentile girlfriend and <laughs> has no idea about Jewish culture. And then it is so interesting that to him, rest restitution is made in the form of this painting. Because restitution is, you make restitution to someone who has suffered. And oddly enough, the one person who has not suffered at all is our hero. Uh, the father, who is a guy who works the angles, oddly enough, doesn't want to have anything to do with this very valuable work of art. So there's a mystery locked into it. Uh, but this whole idea of restitution is really interesting because until there is resti uh, this, this possibility of restitution, he is completely divorced from his own past, from cultural past, from his religion, uh, from the whole thing. And uh, suddenly he... It's like, oh, yeah, I'm Jewish, and there was a whole... Well, that, I mean, obviously, that notion of restitution is, it resonates, right? There's lots of, their levels for, of it right. in the novel, and there's the obvious, the, the financial, the return of the painting. But there's also this relationship with his father being restored, these other right. things. And ultimately, you know, and, and I tread carefully, because I know there's at least one, one actor friend in the room here, but when I... When I chose to, to make him an actor, uh, it was partly because I, I needed to separate him from me, because, you know, Matt and I share some traits, but I didn't want it to be autobiographical, so I picked a, a profession I would never do myself, and, but that I knew something about, because I had friends in that world, and I could write about it reasonably authentically. But I also sort of like this idea of, of a person who, has to, who sort of puts on persona, and, and it seems to me uh, an occupational hazard that in putting on all those personae, one might lose track of one's authentic self. I'm not suggesting that that's the case here tonight. If he had one. But if he, ha if he had one to begin with, right. So, and, and he is someone who's, I think, more comfortable putting on and discarding these different faces and selves. And it has enabled him for a long time to not look at this big, dark thing that's, you know, right facing in front right. of him. And then as he confronts it, it screws up his acting. Because yeah. there's a Excellent. deeper root. He's in his head, you know, you can, he's, yeah, he's in his head too much. Yeah, that's coming down. Um, there's a wonderful memorial that's created in the book um, that I don't know if this is real or whether you made it up, but it's in Hungary of empty bronze shoes on the lip of the Danube to commemorate the Jews shot yeah, and killed in the river. That's real? It's real. See, I gave you credit for it. Um, and there's something about those haunted shoes which 
the empty shoes wait for us to fill them, right? There's an expectation. But if we had, we'd also be dead. Right. So it's the and paradox. They, can't be they really can't be filled. So. Right. And uh-huh. the father is a survivor. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, he has, he's got the killer instinct. He, he does, he does. And, and you know, my, my, own, my own father, on, on whom this character is based, uh, survived the war in sort of wild ways that are not even covered in this book. He got the papers of a, of a Christian friend of his and lived out the war on, in his identity, smuggling food to his own father who was like starving in the countryside. It was a you know, pretty risky proposition. And then in 56, when the revolution came to Hungary, he escaped with literally like bullets flying past him as he was you know running across the border. So I, I wanted that kind of, that to think about where the person who's been through all of that over there lands when they get here and, and, and what they become. They've got a, obviously a relationship to all those things that form them, right. but you know they're not running from bullets yet in America. So so it's it's a different kind of existence that they're And then there's away. this whole invisible world that's part of their life, but their children look at them and they just see a blank space where that world is. Um, I his uh, Matt when he is beginning the journey to restitution of this painting uh, is begins to work with an orthodox um, attorney who he finds really appealing in ways he doesn't understand because his gorgeous model girlfriend is like the best, you know, so why? But she, he's so attracted to this orthodox woman and there's something about the way she touches the mezuzah in her office. She has to leave because it's almost sundown on Shabbos. Um, and he, he envies that moment of touching the mezuzah and he goes to buy himself a mezuzah and this is one of I would love you to read this um, the Matt's floundering approach to the outskirts of his Judaism uh, perfectly captured a trip to what my ex-husband would call a shalom shop <laughs> in, ter- in, in search of a mezuzah so I've marked it can you read sure. it? Sure. I, I love doing this when other writers pick things that they want you to read so that's always more fun yeah, so it's these. I think they're, yeah, you'll, you'll see the natural ending. Um, I'll, I'll just say, though, that uh, actually, so Rachel, the attorney we're referring to, she's not orthodox, but she's she's observant. She's conservative and observant. So um, so he's gone into this store on Pico that, you know, maybe many of us have wandered by shops like this. And, and um, here we go. Um, I was suffused with a feeling of anticlimax. The echoes of that first meeting continued to reverberate, and I was desperate to feel that again, that purpose, that, dare I say, knowing, it, knowing how it will sound, love. And so it came to pass, after several weeks of quiet, I made my way to a small shop that carried Jewish specialty items. I decided to buy a mezuzah of my own, as though this might restore in me the quiet ecstasy I'd beheld. Yes, I'm aware of how foolish, how pathetic that sounds now, but if it's any consolation, it felt foolish and pathetic even then. I headed down to I headed down I headed down to one of the Jewish neighborhoods that dot Pico Boulevard, and I stumbled more or less at random into a store called Solomon's. Yes, I know. Would I make that up? The shop was sunlit, although a faint odor of dust permeated the space. 
Moving through the store, one traveled from the general interest books in the front, through the religious accessories in the middle of the store, to the storehouse of religious texts in the rear. The character of the handful of customers seemed to progress along similar lines. Two women in jeans and t-shirts perused the menorah selection, while an elderly bearded Hasid fingered a Babylonian Talmud. I asked the orthodox 20-something behind the counter where the mezuzahs were, and he directed me to the middle of the store, barely looking up from his text. Did he know a poser when he saw one? Can I stop there? Sure. You know, I... It, it's it's his first venture into his Judaism is going and he let's suffice it to say he leaves without the mezuzah he just can't, <laughs> can't, can't get it can't doesn't, doesn't quite pull, pull it together but this uh, there's a longing for uh, for he admires the, the that connection that the attorney has with with uh, God with a, a transcendent uh, dimension of life, um, which doesn't come through his father. It, his I don't know, but it it's sort of his first attraction to his Judaism, mm-hmm. to recovering it, and uh, he starts in the outskirts. Boy, yeah. well, that sort of you know that again. That's one of the slightly more autobiographical parts that mirrors my own tentative journey through all this stuff. When, when I started to write this book, one of the things I realized is that, you know, I was actually like a pretty lousy Jew. In fact, I wrote a, recently wrote an essay called Notes from a Lousy Jew. Um, because I hadn't been raised in the tradition. I didn't know the things one is supposed to know. And so uh, a rather well-known rabbi, Rabbi David Wolpe, some of you guys may know him, he's a literary rabbi and a wonderful guy, sent me to uh, a course, uh, an 18-week course in uh, Introduction to Judaism at the American Jewish University where I met this dear wonderful bearded man who remains my friend to this day. And I remember looking around the room and people would look at me like, why are you here? You're, you're, you're in already. What's, but but I, I, had to, I had to go through this study and learn the things that, that I didn't. And one of the things that I found, you know, I'm a, I'm a pretty staunch atheist and I guess I place myself in sort of the, the, the rational humanist camp. But I'm not one of those atheists who is sort of scornful of belief. In fact, I think I sort of, I envy um, the solace, the comfort, the mm-hmm. things that, that, that it brings to people who are able to have faith. And there's a part of me that feels like I wish I could have that kind of faith. It feels like a defect, maybe that I can't. But that was a piece that I wanted to sort of scratch raw when I was writing about Matt and, and look at that stuff. And then when you look at... Uh you know, the disappeared in his family, when you look at the, at the deaths and stuff, the religion uh, was what marked them. So many of them uh, didn't practice. They were secular Jews, but they were punished anyway. Yeah. It didn't matter how assimilated And it was very common when they came here, they would hide the fact of their Judaism. You know, mm-hmm. they were like, too shaken, shaken up by everything. We'll have a Christmas tree. We're going to blend in. We're not going to, you know, right. make noise. And 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 that was definitely something oh, that I, yeah. I was raised in in that kind of an environment. So yeah. Well, this is it. Brings us back to the the um, that issue of restitution. The way it's at first, it's like, oh boy, I get a painting that's worth a couple mil. Yay! But there the history comes with it. There is a re- restoring 
the history into his life as the painting comes in. So the restitution spreads out. And, and that's the direction. stuff, ultimately, that's the most important. Anyway, the, my <clears throat> hero, the, the recently departed John Berger, the great, great writer, when he accepted the Booker Prize for the novel G, he famously said that clarity is more important than money. And, and I think that's maybe one of the ideas that was sort of is bouncing around in my head while I'm figuring out what the outcomes of this story yeah, are. Yeah, that's a so. huge part of it, yeah. isn't it? I think yeah. so. Yeah, the... Uh, uh, then I thought it was very interesting and something I found incredibly true about how Matt feels. He returns to Hungary. That's not a spoiler, is it? No. He returns to Hungary to trace the provenance of the painting and he goes to see where the fascist who actually got possession of the painting from his family to buy their way out of Hungary. Uh, and he goes to that neighborhood and he, he looks at everybody like who was over a certain age a certain way. Like, oh, you were here. I was wondering if you would read that part. It's funny, that's actually one of my, my favorite bits when I decided what I was going to read on the tour. It was between that scene and this. So thanks to you, I get to read a little bit of that. Yeah. So I think you've set it up perfectly. I don't think we need to know anything more than that. To my surprise, I rang the bell. I had no plan, did not know what to say or do, but it didn't matter. No one answered. For some reason, the silence provoked me, and I rang again and again, longer and harder, and then I began to bang on the door harder and harder, and the knocking became pounding, obscenity-laced, and then I began kicking the door, which didn't budge an inch, bored beneath my blows. I paused in my shrieking to catch my breath. I was drawing attention from passers-by when I noticed a mottled old face, man or woman, impossible to tell, peering out through a tattered lace curtain next door. And although it's nothing more than melodramatic fancy, I'm sure he, she, it was snarling at me. She, a crone, surely. Had she known Halas? She was about the right age. What did she remember, the bitch? The lace billowed, and when it settled, the space in the window was empty. I turned and looked up and down the street, and suddenly every elderly face was suspect. A pensioner. Do they call them that here? Hobbled by, hunched over a string shopping bag filled with canned goods. He wouldn't make eye contact with me, and although it was probably nothing more than an advanced case of osteoporosis, I was convinced it was guilt that stooped him. See, this is where our Californian becomes a European. <laughs> uh, well, I've always had this weird, you know, my parents are European. I was raised in a very European household. And when I'm here in the States, I'm very conscious of how European I can feel or seem or, or behave. But when I go to Europe, I feel like such a fucking American. It's like, oh, no, you're, you're an ugly American just like the rest. Don't, don't flatter yourself. So I feel the, the, the tug of war of those sides. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um. So I had a question where, you know, you've been, you've taught for many years at, at, and are one of the great teachers at uh, UCLA Extension where everybody gets their chops. Yes, yes, uh, many of us have come through that. Oh, yeah. And uh, I thought, let's talk about art being made in disastrous times. <laughs> you know, as whatever, we're all... Whatever do you mean? You know... You write about the the uh, artist Karl Mann, who who has painted this painting, who who uh, burns his work, and yet is glad that he has sold some of it 
that it would survive? Uh, how are we to think about our art as we're making it in these times? It's funny, I, um, when, when you have a book coming out, you're asked to write a ton of free essays for people. That's what publicity looks like today. And I remember I was, when I had that list of essays that I discussed with my publicist, I had one about like creating art in the age of Trump uh, on that list. And I never wrote it because it kind of stymied me a bit. Um, but I do remember, you know, I got a number of emails from distressed and bereft students and, and we've all had that feeling of, this is pointless, this is trivial, you know, the world is going to melt down, why am I writing fiction? Which in the best of times can feel like a pointless and a trivial endeavor. And, you know, the, the, the best I could sort of come up with is that it remains this, this thing that is just essentially and definingly human. I feel like to, to, to give that up is to surrender something that, you know, it, it's the thing that separates us from the beasts. This, this capacity to create um, is precious, and like I know that all sounds kind of corny and platitude-y, but I, I believe that shit. And every morning, when you sort of saddle up and sit down, and you make this choice: Do I read the day's headlines and you know feel my heart rate increase and my hands start to shake, or do I maybe close that off for a little while because my reading about it isn't going to change it or make the slightest bit of difference? And instead, I'll take that energy and I'll put it into creating something, and maybe I'll get a random email from some person who read my book and they tell me that the book made a difference to them. And I don't know that we can hope for anything more grandiose than that right now, but I do think in, in the name of all that is human, you know, we have to sort of hold on to creating and, and believe in the value of this stuff, even when it really day-to-day -day doesn't feel like... Right, it's like poetry is the news that's not... That stays in, news. Right. Right, exactly. It's not exactly. in the paper. Well, I thought I... I think Should it's a good it time to open questions? it up yeah. to questions. I'd love to hear from folks in the room if there are any questions at all about... Oh. 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 Yes. Um, so, so that absence, you know, I was very close to that. I was working in New York in a gallery, one of the very famous home master galleries that really the last boat out and he was able to deal with a lot of this work. Mm -hmm. And um, I was going through the archives of all their letters from the time. And I was so fascinated and I wanted so much to talk and interview. Yep. And that silence that you so beautifully articulated. What is that? It felt a little bit like guilt to me. I'm gonna say that. Yeah. I'm gonna ask you sure. where that comes from. So is, is, for those who can't hear in the back distilling this question, so it has to do with does the silence, does the reluctance of people to talk carry a dimension of survivor guilt, essentially, with that refusal to talk. And, you know, I th like I said, I, I, I think it's, that's certainly a piece of it. I, I you know, my, my, I have some folks here who are in my, my, my workshop and they've heard me say many times, like, nothing is just one thing. And so, I, I really believe that and I think that sure, there's that, that knowledge of the, those who didn't make it and why in the cosmic lottery did I get through and, and they not get through. And like I said, when my mother told me this story, it was really sort of blew my mind. But I also think you know, I mean, it is, it, is, it is a trauma. Like, it's a genuine trauma. And I think that generation was coming through... You know, they didn't have therapists on every corner like we have. They didn't have access, perhaps, to the ways of coping and contending. And certainly, my parents are Eastern European, and that ethic there is 
you don't complain, you buck up, you know, stiff upper lip and just get on with your life. And we all know how well that works out for our emotional health and well-being. So I, I think it's, it's a number of those things. It's the traumatic aspect, the guilt, the desire to put the past in the past and not burden, you know, the generation that's coming up. It's, there's a lot of things, I think, that swirl around that. So, and, I think. And there's an odd, like, um, envy of the innocence that they have protected. Mm -hmm. That's part of the tension between the father and the son. He think the father thinks the son is an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> All fathers think sons are idiots. That's uh, why I'm glad I have a daughter. So. You've also, you know, but the father's also been protecting the son from things that uh, would make them less of an idiot, but not as as happy. Right, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Vicki, I saw your hand go. Process, and I guess I would narrow the question to, you know, with this novel, what was the most important lesson you learned in the writing of it? Sure. So the question, if you heard it, was in a process question, what was the most important or surprising thing that I learned in, in the writing of this novel? And again, it's actually something that you've now heard me say since. Um, and it's the kind of thing, you know, I think when we teach writing, and I imagine you've had the same experience, we say things that we believe to be true, have heard to be true, assume to be true. It's very different when we then experience that thing in our own writing, and then the lesson really changes. And, and what I really kind of learned is that if you aren't surprised by what you're writing, then the reader's not going to be surprised by what they're reading. And the, um, in my first novel, I had an outline. I had come from a screenwriting background, and I, I needed the training wheels, the comfort. It sort of got me through. Um, and yet even in that novel, the thing that I'm happiest with is a relationship that surprised me, that, you know, emerged. Here, I, I decided to follow a method of a few of my friends in the room who have written in less orderly um, ways and just sort of drop in and write a scene here and a scene there and allow the book to coalesce, which is why the first draft took four years. But in that process, I had this, like, like we said, no spoilers, but I had this sort of moment of shocking surprise in the narrative. And it is a, it is a twist in the narrative that none of you will see coming, even though now you're alerted to look for it. I, I had an editor of a major publisher who wanted to buy the book. So he was the publisher, and he said, how did I not see this coming? He didn't see it coming because I didn't see it coming. And so, you know, to, to open the space in writing, to be surprised by things, that was, that was the big reinforced through a life lesson, something that intellectually I knew but I hadn't experienced yet, so. Tim. David. Um, having written a book, um, the father figure, thinking my father would not live long enough to read or not read, and I was wrong on both accounts. I'm wondering, in your experience, I remember you were writing this book and your father was still around, and the prospect of him reading it, and how was that for you, and how, if had he live to read it, how do you think he would have reacted and how would you like have liked him to react? That, that's a great, great question. So I think you all heard that in the back. David's good at projecting. But, um, I actually didn't start the book for a long time because I knew I didn't have the guts to write it sufficiently honestly while my dad was alive. And in January of 2009 is when I began writing the book. And at that, my dad had, had kidney failure for many years, and so he'd been on dialysis for a decade. And by January of 2009, he was spending more time in the hospital than at home. And it sort of waved the checkered flag for me. And, and, 
Um, you know, and, and I began to, to sort of write around the book. The truth is, you know, I'll make this confession. This is like a father-son's thing. Like, he scared the shit out of me. And, and I don't know, simultaneously, I think I would have feared his disapproval, and yet I also would have been reluctant to, to hurt him, you know? So it was a very complicated relationship. I don't think I could have written it while I knew he would be there to see it. And my dad cooperated with my timeline, I guess, you know, more, more than yours did. Um, but my sister has read it, and my sister and my father were very close. And there, were, there was a couple of months where she wasn't talking to me because she felt I had committed a, an act of patricide on the page. Whereas my mother, who is a more sophisticated reader of fiction maybe than my sister is, understood what was going on in a novel and, and the fictionalization of, of the characters. So. But I'm not sure I would have... If he'd been hale and hearty, I, I might have written something else next. I don't know. I don't know. Dinah. Uh, so, this whole uh, generational thing. As a father, I'm wondering, Mark, if you discovered anything in writing, the research in a book or the writing, book that changed the way you would approach this stuff with your own daughter? Um, the, the book... The sort of the birth of the book really uh, and its evolution almost directly corresponds with my daughter's sort of birth and growth. I started as in January of 2009, and my daughter, who was supposed to be here tonight but was sick with the flu, was born in May. So as I was writing the book, sort of at the same time, simultaneously, I was learning to be a new father. Um, I think, you know, my my dad and and. Uh, as much as I've trash-talked him here tonight, you know, I love the old guy, and I know that he did the best that he could with me, given the time he grew up in, the place in the world, what he knew fathering should be. Um, as I wrote the book, and it sort of put me in touch again, sort of revisiting those moments of cruelty, you know, and certainly like sort of physical kind of harm, I knew I was never going to be a spanker. I was never going to do anything like that. But it really did sort of underscore that I wanted to have um, a, a warmer relationship with my child, where, where she knew that I love her and that I love her no matter what. My, my dad's approval, like the Gabor's in the novel, always felt conditional. You know, if you succeed a certain way, if you accomplish a certain level. You know, he was, he was thrilled when the first novel got sold, but he was thrilled because it got sold for a lot of money. You know, that's the thing he cared about. And so, you know, I, it, bringing him back under the microscope, I'm sure in, in sort of quiet ways, influenced how I, how I treat my daughter. Well, what about the history and the legacy and the, the, the Judaism? What about all that stuff? Is that more important than it was in terms of, of, of carrying on? That's really complicated. <laughs> um, we can, we can talk about that in Vermont. No, uh, you know, the, the, the short answer, honestly, so without sort of airing all of my, my, my stuff in the world, uh, Clara's, my daughter's mother is Catholic. There were some sort of differences in, but because my religious faith, even having written this book, I don't now suddenly identify, I'm not observant still. I mean, I'm certainly very comfortable saying yes, I'm, I'm a Hungarian Jew, I'm all of that. But it's not part of my daily life, and and so I, I was fine with the Catholic school. The truth is that, you know, and we were gonna talk about this. Like the world's still not a great place for the Jews. You know, we have this idea that it is, and things are different, but they're not. And and I really had to sort of think about my daughter's safety and how she goes around in the world and what she identifies as. And again, I I decided that I'm gonna you know when she reaches of age, 18, and she wants to 
discuss, explore, look at these other sides of her heritage, because it is, and she knows dad's Jewish, and we have those discussions, then we'll, we'll look at those things. But that's a hard one. I, I've struggled and stumbled a bit with that one, so. But thank you for asking a good probing question there. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. No, it's great. Miranda. So, uh, first of all, it's funny, I'm glad that you sort of. <laughs> I'm 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 a lucky I'm a lucky dope, but we'll talk about that. Uh, no, I'm glad you mentioned that about the father because I'll also say that for dramatic purpose, I've made Gabor much more monstrous than my father was, but I've also given him some I hope some depth and dimension, you know, that maybe my dad didn't have. So I've I've balanced out the scale in the end. Um, I'm very instinctive. You know, when I write particularly in the first draft space and even as I'm revising. But I, I knew I had this idea, and I still have it, that all the narratives of our lives are bullshit. You know, we, they, you can't trust any of them. And, you know, I think about even now, to Dinah's question, like, what, what am I going to tell my daughter? What is she going to know about me growing up? They're, they're false, right? We, you know, there is no narrative from day to day. We, we write a novel. We order events. We, we try to give our life a meaning, or, but it really, it, it isn't. And so I'm, I'm always very interested in the unreliability of all of that. Like, uh, unreliability is a big thing with me, and the, the I'm, I'm teaching right now, um, by co great coincidence, Chronicle of a Death Foretold, which I hadn't read in years, and I only picked it on the syllabus because I wanted an excuse to read it again. But I was struck by how full that novel is about with the, the unreliability of memory, how memories clash and narratives clash, and like the second something's in the past, you already can begin to not trust accounts of it. So, so I'm, I'm interested in that, and the things that I'm interested in sort of worm into the novel. I'm, I'm not that like smart or brilliant that it was super conscious, um, but I also think as you move through drafts, the, the writer's job is to identify potentials like your, your own little patterns, your own little bugaboos, and say, oh, wait a minute. I'm a little obsessed with this idea, but there's something here that's narratively valuable, thematically valuable, that I can exploit and, and pump up. So no, a little luck, and maybe a, a little bit smarty or lucky. So, uh. Other questions? Yes, Olivia. Thank you. So this book actually has a, a bibliography in the back, which is, I guess, unusual for novels, but I, I, there were so many works I referred to, and I was really grateful to those books and spent a lot of years reading, reading, reading. And one of the books I actually read was a book on Jewish Budapest, and it was like the history of Jewish Budapest back to you know, medieval time. And I had gone to Budapest a lot as a child. I have family there still. But I hadn't been there since the early 90s. Um, and... 
I got to about halfway in the novel. In fact, it's just around the point where Matt goes to Budapest. And I realized like, I didn't have the freshness of the place. And so I, I went to Budapest for five stressful days with my family there. Um, and was grateful again that there is an ocean and two continents between us. But I, you know, I, I walked around Budapest and it was really about the sights, the smells, the sounds, the sort of the tactile feeling of being there. But on that visit, my cousin took me to my father's childhood home. And that is a scene that is in the novel, you know, when, when they go and they visit his apartment. So, and, and in fact, on that same visit, I went to Memento Park, which is the, uh, the, the, sort of graveyard of these Soviet statues there. So it was invaluable. It would have been a, a different novel if I hadn't made the trip, and I think less, less authentic, because I, it's just, it had been too long, so. so. Anyone else? Yes? I have a question about the character McCabe. I don't know if you read from that section or mentioned. No. And, and I, was, um, I was wondering if you could talk about McCabe's on death row and uh, his trial, how that the protagonist and sort of larger theme book. Really sure. Well. Well, thanks. So, so uh, the question is referring to a, so um, my character's fiance, Matt's fiance, um, Tracy, is a anti-death penalty advocate, and she has taken up the cause of this death row inmate, Ricky McCabe. Um, and her sort of uh, her struggles and setbacks and disappointments along the way um, parallel what's what's going on with Matt's life, and that ended up in the book for for a couple of reasons. Um, the first is because in my first draft of the novel, that character of Tracy was kind of a cipher. You know, I, I hadn't really considered her, I hadn't brought her to life. And as I was thinking about the things that I needed to make her more substantial in the second, I interviewed someone I know who does that sort of work, and she turned out to have a really strong social justice component. And so I thought, great, I'm going to steal that. And, 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 and I brought that into the book. Where that ultimately became, I think, significant, where it became a little more than just, oh, here's the thing that this other character is doing to keep them busy in the narrative, is around this idea of, um, you know, believing our own stories. You know, and I don't want to, like, say too much for, the, for those who haven't read it, but there is, just like Matt is an actor and Matt sort of puts on these persona and tells these stories, McCabe has sort of, I think, done something that is a little bit similar. And that's something that was also a surprise. That was something that only came out in a very, very late revision when my editor kept, like, still just poking me in the neck that this character didn't feel finished or done or, or, or good enough. And I was able to sort of peel that last layer back. And, and that's the, the, the part of his character that I'm, that I'm the happiest with. I don't know if that remotely answers what, what you're asking, but, but that's sort of how that came about and why that's in the book. So, um, Anybody else? All right, well, then I think in that case, first I want to thank everybody. I'm so thrilled to see so many of you, and I'm really touched. Thank you. And I think Vanessa will come back up and tell us about book signing and all the rest. You want to? Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.